The songs um, that men could sing. You know, I mean, you all sang it, and you did a great job, but that's one of those deep, Turn to John chapter 8. I want to read, we'll just jump right in and read this morning um, our passage. John chapter 8, verses 21 to 30. We started it last week. Um, We will, Lord willing, finish it this week. But I want to begin here, right in verse 21. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sin for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Let's just take a moment to stop and pray one more time. Lord, we are needy, and we need what you can give us. We need what you give us in your word. And so I pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts today as your word is proclaimed. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to review just a little bit um, from last week's sermon to kind of tie the two together, last week's and this week's. Uh, last week, as we began looking at this passage, we saw, at least the, trying to show us, the urgency of the preaching of the gospel. However, I mentioned from the outset that whether we are talking about preaching to the assembly of saints, as I'm doing now, or declaring the good news of Jesus Christ to your coworker in the lunchroom, or teaching your kids about Jesus, more often than not, or at least many times, we don't know what the response is, at least not the ultimate response. We might see an immediate response, either rejection or belief, We all know that generally, with whichever response, there are ripple effects that may go on for even generations, whether that is on the positive side or the negative side. And so we very briefly, last week, traced the history of the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, through Turkey and Greece, to Austria and England Massachusetts and Kentucky with a connection to New Hampshire and then eventually landing here in present-day Logansville, Ohio. And then I asked the question, where has it gone from here in the past 195 years of this particular church's history? Or, or maybe 
how has it gone from Logansville over the past 195 years? How has the gospel spread? The answer is the same way that it started. The same as it went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It has spread through the message proclaimed, and it will spread through the message proclaimed, through the gospel preached. As Paul said to the Corinthians, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And again, that statement there in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that it, it pleased God through the, the folly, through the foolishness of preaching what we preach to save those who would believe. And in today's passage in John chapter 8, Jesus makes those four specific statements that really highlight for us the importance and the urgency of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. We saw last week that the grace and mercy that God has, that it's just wrapped up in this simple phrase, unless you believe. God's grace and mercy is wrapped up in that phrase, unless you believe. Unless you believe, Jesus said, you will die in your sin. I want to say this again, even though I said something close to this last week. This is the urgency of the gospel. The sin that condemns is the sin of unbelief. Now, that's not to say that no other sin condemns. The wages of sin is death. But dying in your sin is dying without repentance. It's dying with your sin unpaid for, unatoned for. It's dying and then facing the wrath and judgment of our holy God. And so we need to understand this. I said it again, again, I said this last week, but we need to understand this. All of your other sins can be covered by the blood of Christ. All of your other sins can be covered by the blood of Christ through repentance and faith. Now, be careful. Um, again, I'm not a hyper-grace guy saying that we should continue to sin, that grace may abound. What I am saying is that the one sin that will not be covered by the grace of God is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. That's a promise. Unless you believe you will die in your sins. So I gave you that example. Uh, I really want to hit this hard, so I'm going to give you the same example as we said last week. Um, I want to be sure that you understand this. Uh, but let's say that your sin, your besetting sin, so to speak, is the sin of adultery. Again, I'm not saying that you're only guilty of one sin. You're guilty of a multitude of sin. But let's say your sin is a sin of adultery or maybe murder. As I said, though, adultery is probably more common even in this room. So let's say you're uh, guilty of committing adultery. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So even if you're guilty of that sin... Or whichever sin turns your stomach, whichever deep sin that you just are so ashamed of, or maybe it's the ones that you're not ashamed of, pride, arrogance, whatever. 
If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And yet here in John chapter 8, these Pharisees, because they would not confess their sin, because they would not repent of their unbelief, because they were guilty of this sin that leads only to death, because they rejected Jesus Christ, he says that they will die in their sin. And as I said a minute ago, this passage in John chapter 8, he makes these four specific statements that really highlight for us the, the importance and, and the urgency of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really, three statements that Jesus makes and one that John makes at the end sort of as a commentary or observation. But let me give you again the four statements. The first was, unless you believe. We talked about that one at length last week. Unless you believe. But then he also says, much to say, much to say, lift it up. And then finally, John adds, just sort of as a, almost a side note right at the end, believed in him, in verse 30. One of the points I tried to make last week was that there will come a time when preaching, that is evangelistic preaching, will end. Now, as God's people... We will be forever proclaiming His great love for us, so clearly displayed on the cross. We will forever be declaring and proclaiming His majesty, His glory, His worthiness to be praised. But until we are able to worship Him face to face, preaching with an aim to conversion continues. And the message that we preach... The message that you and I proclaim, every time we share the gospel, that message continues. Look again at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that Jesus is the one who promised, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Unless you put your your faith and your trust in him, you will die in your sins. That's not what I'm saying, by the way. That's what Jesus is saying, and he's saying it very explicitly there in verse 24. But this is good news. This is good news because while preaching will end, yet for now, preaching continues. Or as Jesus says here, I have much to say. Look at verses 25, 6, and 7. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Now, remember, he's just said, I am he. And and if you remember, that's sort of an informal way to saying, I I am. I am Yahweh. In other words, he's he's alluding to this. That's not, it's not, he's um, not outright saying that I am, but he's alluding to it. But the result of him saying this, the result of him saying, I am he, is their question there in verse 25. It's their, it's their follow-up question. But that follow-up question, who are you, is really an accusation. See, the emphasis um, there is on the word you. 
Who are you? You? Who are you? They're still accusing him. They're very close to saying outright, who do you think you are? That's almost what they're saying here. Not quite, but almost. So you have to put this kind of entire scene in perspective. Jesus is showing great restraint, even in his warnings. Even though his warning, as I said last week, he's taken the gloves off. He's hitting them bare knuckle now. You will die in your sin. He is still showing great restraint. He's showing great patience and long-suffering. He is displaying his great mercy toward them, even if they don't see it. And this is who our God is. He, He is a God who has much to say and much to judge, yet he's merciful. Think of God's mercy toward his own people. Think of it throughout the Old Testament, for example. The people of God, the people of Israel who continually sin against him and and turn their backs on him. Asaph summarized God's um, history of God's mercy and the people's sin in Psalm 78. Just turn back to Psalm 78. It's a a long psalm. He actually goes on for 72 verses, um, summarizing the history of God's mercy. And by the time you read the entire thing, you ought to be be dumbstruck with just how merciful God is. Let me just read a couple of sections. I want to read beginning in verse 17. Again, this is sort of the history of Israel, the history of God's mercy toward his people. But I just want to pick out a couple of sections. So look at verse 17. Yet they, st- they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out, and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread and provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. God in his wrath could have poured it all out on them right then. And instead, he gave them manna and grain from heaven as they complained. Jump down to verse 32, because it goes on from there. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the Most High God, their Redeemer. But they flattered Him with their mouths. They lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. Yet, He, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger 
often and did not stir up all his wrath. This is where we're at right now. Many of us, often, many Christians, are just flattering God with their, with their mouths, lying to Him with our tongues. Our hearts are not steadfast toward Him, as Psalm says here. We'd be fooling of our, we would be fooling ourselves if we thought, this isn't about us. We're not Old Testament Jews. We're not the Pharisees. The Pharisees must be somebody else. It's not us. The Pharisees are the independent fundamental Baptists. The Pharisees are the Catholics or the Arminians. This isn't about us. How often have we rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert? We've tested God again and again, and we've provoked the Holy One of Israel. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. See, it's what Jesus doesn't do here in John chapter 8 that also proves that he is God. Can you see that? It's what Jesus doesn't do that also proves that he is God. Now, there's a lot more that could be said there. Um, but we'd wander maybe a little too far from the text. I don't want to preach what isn't there. So let's get back to the, his answer to their accusatory question. Look again at verse 25. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. This from the beginning is really a statement that's full of double meanings. He's been telling them who he was from the beginning of his ministry. In fact, if you look back at his first public words here in, in John's gospel, um, that is, aside from his interactions with the disciples in the first couple of chapters, and, and then his mother at the, at the wedding at Cana, his first public words in John's gospel are spoken in the temple in chapter 2, verse 16, which says this, and you'll get the context pretty quickly. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He makes a whip of cords and drives out the money changers and turns over the tables. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. My father's house. He's been telling them who he was from the very beginning. He's the son of God. But it goes back even earlier to an earlier beginning. Because John tells us in the opening of his gospel, the first three verses, John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which is, of course, a reference to the beginning of all beginnings, Genesis chapter 1. He's been telling them this from the beginning. Who are you? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. From the beginning of beginnings. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says, His invisible attributes, 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation, the beginning of the world in the things that have been made. Jesus has been telling us who he is from the beginning, from the creation. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, he he poetically puts it like this. In Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 21, you will recognize some of this at least. He says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root on the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my sight is disregarded by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Who are you? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord, I am, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and now he is here dwelling with them in the flesh, standing in front of them. Who are you? Jesus says in verse 24 there in John, when he says, I told you, and then he says in verse 25, I have been telling you. And in verse 26, I have much to say. I declare at the end of the verse, not only is he talking about the the words in red as they are in my Bible, not only is he talking about the words that, that he has been physically speaking to them, telling them, declaring to them, preaching to them, he's talking about all of God's word. Jesus' task He says this in verse 26. His task is to take all that he has heard from the Father, the one who sent him. He is to take all of this and to tell the world. Of course, he passed this task on to his disciples. He commissioned Christians to do the same for all nations, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, he says, all that I have commanded. And yet even some of what he will say In fact, much of what he will say will actually be said in judgment. It will be a a warning of judgment. So, So consider all of this. Who are you? I'm the one that's been talking from the very beginning, Jesus says. 
From the very beginning, I've been telling you the same message, and it's been the message from the Father. It's been the message throughout all of Scripture. It's the same message, and there's a warning. There's a warning of impending judgment. We read of that in Isaiah chapter 22 earlier. I mean, think of this for a moment. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven. He describes hell in greater detail than he describes heaven. There's no denying that Jesus knew and believed and warned against the absolute reality of hell, which he described as a place of eternal torment. Jesus is warning them over and over and over throughout his teaching, throughout the scriptures, even as he faces his opponents. He's warning them over and over and over. But he's also showing great mercy toward them. This is why, this is why preaching continues even to today. And, and by preaching, again, I just mean sharing the gospel. This is why proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ continues even to today because the world is in the same category as verse 27. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. The world is in the same category. Our friends and our family who do not believe in Jesus Christ are in that same category. They don't understand. They don't understand what God has been saying to us. They don't understand that Christ is preaching the same message that Abraham believed, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord. It was by God's grace that Abraham believed the Lord, put his faith and his trust in the Lord. Later, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. Faith. We are saved by grace through faith. This is the same message that we preach, the message that Jesus preached. Now, <clears throat> I, I don't know if you've noticed this or not as we've walked through John's gospel. I certainly have. And it seems sometimes, and maybe recently, it seems that the sermons have kind of felt kind of judgy. Kind of kind of like a lot of bad news. But we are constrained by the word of God and Jesus has been mostly interacting with his enemies. Have you noticed that throughout John's gospel? That's who he's talking to, his people who have refused to believe and he is begging and pleading with them, telling them the truth. Unless you believe, you'll die in your sins. He's calling them to repent and warning them of impending judgment. This is why the preacher of Hebrews, so many times in his sermon of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, he will quote the psalmist, he will quote the Old Testament and say, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, this is why we need to hear the bad news. Because without Christ, it's, it's not all just going to work out in the end. This is why preaching continues. This is why sharing the gospel continues. This is why the Great Commission was given. This isn't the ultimate purpose of preaching either. And we need to remember that. John Piper famously wrote in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's the name of his book. He, he said this. Missions, so evangelism, sharing the gospel, whether that's overseas or with our neighbors, but specifically he was talking about missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. 
Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Worship will continue throughout all eternity. Then face to face. Look at verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. This is the third statement or phrase, really, that I wanted to highlight here that Jesus makes that we need to emphasize, it's this phrase, lifted up, lifted up. The ultimate purpose of proclaiming the gospel, of preaching, is to glorify God. That's what, Piper, that's what that Piper quote was all about. It's about worship. And so if we could go back to the kind of the courtroom motif here for just a moment. This is Jesus' verdict. Now, now, the Jews will issue an appeal in the next section, but this is the verdict Notice the finality of what Jesus is saying there. When you have lifted up the Son of God, or the Son of Man, then you will know. There's a finality to that. It's also interesting that while they're demanding proof for his claim to be the light of the world, remember that's what all of this is about, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world, They're actually looking for proof that he is the light of the world. And he's actually telling them that they will be the ones to provide that proof. They will be the ones to lift him up on the cross. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, the light of the world. I am. This is not the first time that he's used this kind of lifted up language. He said this to to Nicodemus back in chapter 3. In fact, in verses 14 and 15, he said this, uh, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. But again, just like with the last passage, there's two meanings here. Jesus is clearly talking about the cross. He's clearly uh, talking about them actually lifting him up physically onto the cross, dropping it into the hole in the ground as he sits there above them hanging on the cross. He's literally talking about that. All of this tension, all of this conflict between him and them is building towards this. We understand this. He's clearly talking about his suffering, his death, and his burial. All of his harsh words for the Pharisees, for the Jews, all all of these run-ins that he's been having with them is going to end up with them putting him to death. And he obviously knows this. He obviously is speaking in terms that they don't even understand when the Son of Man is lifted up. But in the larger context of the Scriptures... He's being lifted up. This, this idea of his being lifted up, it also speaks of his, of his exaltation and his glorification in, in majesty. It speaks also of his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Listen to the conclusion to Peter's very first sermon from at least the first one in Acts after uh, Jesus had ascended to heaven. In Acts chapter 2, 
verses 20, uh, 32 to 36, he, he says this. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, and here he quotes from Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In the preaching of the cross, even this one Greek word, lifted up is one word in Greek, even this one word, even in that, the message of the gospel is proclaimed, that Christ would be lifted up when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. Then you will know that I am He. It's only in His humiliation that Jesus can be exalted and glorified. Only in His humiliation. Let me explain that a little bit. There's a book called The Crucified King. Um, author's name is Jeremy Treat. He, he says this, from the cradle to the cross, the life of Jesus is clearly one of humiliation. Then he goes on to explain this. He says, Scripture reveals and the eye of faith perceives that even during his time of humiliation, when he is being beaten and scorned and the crown of thorns is being twisted on his head, even in his time of humiliation, he's being exalted, glorified, and enthroned as king. It's only in his humiliation, his being lifted up onto the cross, that Jesus can be exalted and glorified. And through it, he, he is exalted as king. It's in his perfect obedience and in his spotless sacrifice. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you have humiliated and tortured the one who has been sent by God for his own glory, then you will know. And for many, it will be too late. But then you will know that the judge has received on himself the punishment of the guilty. It's Philippians chapter 2, 8 to 11. You're familiar with this passage too, probably. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Preaching that glorifies God, and again, whether that's church preaching or sharing the gospel with your kids, preaching that glorifies God is preaching that lifts up Christ by pointing at the cross. That's why Jesus is preaching to them, to point to the cross, and even through the cross, to the God who, as Isaiah 40, verse 22 says, sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. This is the one who speaks, not on his own authority, but he speaks just as the Father told him. He speaks in perfect obedience. 
And this idea of Jesus speaking not on his own authority, after the resurrection, Jesus said this. So here he says he speaks not on his own authority, but on the authority of the one who sent me. But after the resurrection, he said this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the urgency of sharing the gospel, proclaiming the good news. This is the reason that this continues, that preaching continues. This is the reason that we continue to share the gospel because the king commands it. Verse 30, and as he was saying these things, many believed in him. As he was saying these things, as he's having an argument and a debate back and forth with with people who do not believe, people who refuse to believe in him, people standing there listening come to believe. They believed in him. This is the results of preaching. Sometimes. I need to put that caveat on there. Sometimes this is the result of preaching. So compelling was Jesus' teaching that many who heard him here in the temple, verse 20 tells us they're in the temple, that many there believed in him, even without any understanding of his death and resurrection. What's really going on here? Because as, as Christians... The Bible tells us, for example, in places like 1 Corinthians, where Paul is very explicit about this, that Christ's work on the cross is the central message of the gospel. He just has hints of it here. He just says when the Son of Man is lifted up, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. So what are we talking about? What exactly are they believing in? Well, belief or faith in Christ is the core of Christianity. And since we believe that Jesus is God, and this is his claim in that statement in in chapter 8, verse 12, and really the the basis that started this whole discussion, I am the light of the world. And specifically, we've come, come to understand that Jesus is God the Son. Therefore, to believe in him is to believe in God. In its simplest form, this brings righteousness justification. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And this believed in, it's not simply a one-time event. Now, there is a moment when the believing soul moves from death to life. God made alive together with Christ, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. There's a moment when when the dead soul comes to life. But often this coming to life It's more like what we read about in Ezekiel chapter 37, which looks like this. So I prophesied as I was commanded, preached, that word prophesy, proclaimed what God said, thus saith the Lord. So I prophesied as I commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them, and sin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. 
And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. For many of us, coming to new life in Christ is that gradual rebirth as God's word, as the, as the spirit of God breathed life into our souls and we then confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and so therefore we are saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But this belief isn't mere assent or or an acknowledgement of Jesus' truth claims. James tells us in his his letter that that belief isn't enough. It must be backed up with, essentially, with a changed life. It must be backed up with with displays of genuine repentance. This This is righteous, the righteous man living by faith. And I want to I want you to take just a minute for you to see what living by faith looks like. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This is what it looks like to live by faith. So first, uh, the preacher here has to define his terms. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, that is faith, the people of old received their uh, commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks." By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they'd been uh, thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises and was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had providing something, has provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. See, faith is not merely just saying, I believe in Jesus, or, or asking Jesus into your heart. Faith is putting your trust in God and building an ark if you're Noah, or moving to an unknown yet promised land, if you're Abraham, or offering up Isaac. It's putting all of your trust in God and, and directing that your descendants should move your bones back to the promised land, if you're Joseph. Or more likely for us, faith is trusting in the promises of God, even through torture, mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, being destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Faith is believing that all of these things 
That in and through all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is knowing for certain that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord because it is God who justifies. Believing in him is believing that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand, the throne of God. He has been lifted up. He is exalted. Let's pray. Unless you believe, Lord, I believe that there are no more important words than those It's as if in that, in that statement, Jesus is even saying, but God. You will die in your sins, but God. And so, Lord, as we think of where we are at, I pray that you would strengthen, that you would lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees that we would make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, that we would strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would live by faith, trusting in Christ, that we would live lives of urgency to share the gospel with compassion and boldness, that we would be transformed to live by faith. Change our hearts, Lord. Change our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.